0: Amen. Well, really good to see all of you. And for all of you who are joining us online, we are so grateful to have you with us. If you want to find your Bibles, we are in the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 2. So if you want to find those, with the warmer weather, it's got me thinking like I'm about done with winter, okay? You know, I've definitely acclimated to Texas. And one of the things that historically my family and I have loved to do in the spring, summer, and fall is go on hiking trips. And this gets started for, like, Karina and I, when we're dating. Uh, on our honeymoon, we went on different hiking trips. And all through our family years, as they're growing up, we've uh, taken trips hiking. And, you know, usually it's, it's really pretty easy. I mean, I would admit sometimes there are even paved trails. I don't know if that's hiking or walking or whatever. But then, of course, you know, lots of dirt trails. You pretty much know where you're going uh, but there were different times, though, we'd go hiking, oftentimes in Colorado, that I wasn't actually sure where the trail was, you know? I mean, like, it just seemed to, like, this is all rock, and, you know, there's, we're, I don't even see the trail. And, of course, you got your family, and you kind of want to, like, okay, they're following you. You want to make sure you know where you're going, right? Uh, and one of the things that I'm always looking for are these stacked rocks, okay? And they're called cairns, Okay. And some very helpful soul knew there'd be lost individuals that would easily be disoriented out there in the wilderness, and that they'd stack these rocks on. And if you're seeing those and you're walking by them, you know you're on the right path. You just keep following these cairns, these, these rocks that have been stacked up, these trail markers. And that led to a lot of successful hikes, even when I was completely lost and really had no idea where I was. You know, sometimes in life, as we're kind of journeying through, we get the impression like, I have no idea where I'm at and even where I'm going. I don't even seem to know the trail. Furthermore, I, I can't understand what God is doing. And you may have had this experience where you're like, I can't even really sense His presence. I don't really even know where God is. I can't make sense of my life. I really don't even know where my next steps are. And what you and I really need is we need to have an understanding of the evidence of His presence. I can tell you that uh, life can throw you some curveballs. You think, oh, it's all working out and I'm right on track, and then all of a sudden your life its as if the carpet just was pulled underneath you. And you can find yourself bruised and beaten down. Your faith can be like it's bleeding. And you're wondering, how in the world do I even move forward And that's complicated when you you know God and you believe that God is great. You certainly at different times have held the fact that God is good. But boy, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of that. I want to give you one principle that is going to be a game changer for you because it's meant so much to me. And that is this. Believing that God is good and he is great allows us, empowers us to move forward by faith. And perhaps you're here today and you're like, that's me. I uh, feel right now that I have lost my way. I don't even know kind of where God is and and where He might be leading me. Ruth chapter 2 is going to be a great chapter for you. Let me just give you a little bit of the background, just to review where we've been. So really this book is focusing on a woman by the name of Naomi. She's married to a man named Elimelech. They and their two boys are living in the land of Israel, but God brings judgment because of the disobedience of a nation. They simply will not acknowledge God, will not walk in His ways, so God brought a famine. That famine was so severe, they decided, you know what? We we should uproot, take the 50-mile journey, and go to Moab, which was Israel's enemies. And it's while they're in Moab, for about a 10-year stint, they were there a lot longer than they thought they were going to be, we find that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Her two boys end up marrying two Moabite women. That's bad enough, but these Moabite women are worshipers of the god Chemosh, a god that is worshiped through child sacrifice. And then her two boys die. And so she is a foreigner in a foreign land. And after 10 years, though, she hears that God has visited his people and brought bread to Judah, the land of Israel. And so she heads back with her two daughter-in-laws in tow and this was probably by design, but about midway on that 50-mile journey between Moab and Bethlehem, Naomi turns to those two girls, Orpah and Ruth, and say, listen, there's no hope with me. I want you to go back to your mamas. I want you to go back home, back to your people, back to your gods. May Yahweh, may God bless you, but you go find husbands, you go on with your life. For me, I'm heading to back to Bethlehem and there's no hope for me. And she runs her logic through them and tries to convince them. And eventually, Orpah, one of the two, she goes, all right, I'll leave. She dries her eyes, says her goodbyes, and she heads back to the land of Moab, to her family, to her friends, to her gods. But Ruth, on the other hand, the other daughter-in-law, literally is grabbing hold of her, clinging to her And she makes this an amazing confession of faith in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This great declaration that she's not the same gal, that she has relationship with the one true living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And she will not be separated. When Naomi realizes that there's nothing I can say to get rid of this girl, she goes silent on her. And they make their way to Bethlehem. And when they show up, you can see it picking up in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, why, it's been 10 years, but some of the folks recognize Naomi. She looks like a shell of what she once was. She went out full, full of resources, full of family, full of life. She comes back empty. It's written all over her. Life's circumstances, her response to them, hadn't made her bitter better. They had made her bitter. And she comes out with this statement. You can read about it in verse 20. They're like, is this Naomi? Is this the one whose name means lovely, pleasant? She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. I've changed my name to Mara. It means bitter because God has dealt very bitterly with me. So here she is. She's experienced great loss She now identifies by the name of Bitter. And that then takes us to Ruth chapter 2. And at this point in the book, uh, if you've read the book, you're like, oh, wow, it all changes. And and everything that happened in Ruth chapter 1, it's like you just forget about it because you find out that there's this guy named Boaz, and you got Ruth, and, and she's single, and whoa, you know what? This book is setting up to be a first-rate romance, a Cinderella story. And boy, do we love them, right? Everything's in place. And so often, that's pretty much how the book of Ruth is taught. And I want you to know that if that's your approach, you're going to miss the significant interactions, the significant acts of faith, the great truths that God wants to teach us in this account in the book of Ruth. You see, psychologists tell us that if you go through events like the loss of a spouse, the death of a child or your children, a financial collapse, and a significant move, likely you're going to move into depression. And before you just kind of like move into Ruth chapter 2, we need to hit the pause button and let's take a look at what's really going on. These women are been inflicted by the traumas of life. When they show up, when she calls herself Mara, everybody's like, makes sense, looking at you and hearing what has taken place, listening to what you now are saying about God. You see, especially for Naomi, she can't reconcile how God is a God of love Combined with just the incredibly difficult, disappointing, grievous, tragic events that have happened in her life. And because she cannot reconcile them, you know what she does? She jettisons God's love. She acknowledges God, calls Him by name, acknowledges that He is the Almighty, He is the El Shaddai, but makes no mention or reference of God's love. She can't reconcile it. She can't see it. She certainly doesn't think that she's experiencing it, so she goes by Mara. Both of the women are suffering greatly, but it seems Naomi is by far the one who is less able to function. And that's what pain can do. Pain is really uh, an event that takes place in our life, but like Philip Yancey says, pain narrows vision. It forces us to think of ourselves And little else. Think of the times that you've gone through something something very painful in your life. I see this happens in my life. And when you're hit hard and it's taken like everything out of you, what happens? You just start focusing in just on you, specifically what you feel and, and your thoughts on the matter. And it's oftentimes, it's not good. I want you to know that hopelessness weighs a lot. And it's really weighed down Naomi. And what happens is when we're at this point, it's very easy to miss the evidence of God's presence. But the evidence of God's presence is seen, and we're going to see this as we go through this text here, first of all, in God's power to direct our lives. So take a look, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was... Boaz. So here we are, the one who is writing the book of Ruth tells us that unbeknownst to Naomi and Ruth, that there is a relative of Elimelech whose name is Boaz. Uh, And he's referred to as a kinsman. So years ago, when my family and I moved to Texas, um, I had to pick up some new lingo. And one of the words that I heard kicked around by native Texans was kinfolk. They were going to go see their kinfolk. They were talking about their kinfolk, troubles with the kinfolk. I want you to know that was not a term that we used up north. But kinfolk means what? It's your relatives, right? You may love your kinfolk, but you got kinfolk, and you're talking about them, right? Well, that's what this is. It's, kinsmen. it's a kinsman. It's a relative. And they're, this relative that they have His name is Boaz, and he is identified as a man of great wealth. But really, this would be better translated as a man of great valor. It certainly was used of reference of those who had wealth, but it oftentimes was coupled with the fact that they had great character. They were noble, competent. They had skills. They were blessed. They had resources, resources in wisdom and in wealth. That's who Boaz. In fact, Boaz's name, his name means, in him is strength. And when you get to Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, all of a sudden, the minor key that Ruth 1 is being played in, you know, it's just, you know, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is just terrible. All of a sudden, when you get to Ruth chapter 2, it transitions into a major key, and a theme is starting to build. It's like this movie soundtrack, and you can hear it. And notice, we're introduced to Boaz. Now, Boaz was a man who understood grace. You're like, how do you know that? Well, I know that because I read the book of Ruth. In Ruth chapter 4, at the very end, in verse 21, you find out his dad's name is Salmon. And in Matthew chapter 1, there is a genealogy listed of Jesus, and in Matthew 1.5, we find out that Boaz's mother is none other than a woman by the name of Rahab. And if you've ever read the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6, do you know that there was this prostitute that actually hid the Israelite spies when she had them in Jericho? She hid them. Do you know what her name was? It was Rahab. Do you know who Boaz's mother is? Rahab, the former prostitute. I want you to know, I'm sure that made some waves, this marriage. But I want you to know that those experiences were greatly used in Salman's and Rahab's life, and especially in their child, Boaz. This is their son. And I want you to see that these women are hurting Um, You see it, verse 2. And yet Ruth, though she's hurting, she decides to take action. And Ruth, the Moabitess, verse 2, said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and gleam among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. Ruth is hurting too. She is facing the exact same oppressive realities. She has no hope, no hope of an income. I'm sure they're probably getting hungry at this point. She is a foreigner. She knows no one, no friends. She stands out. Everybody seems to know, like, oh, my goodness. The Moabite woman, the one from Israel's enemies, she's with Naomi, this woman by the name of Ruth. People are talking about her. Who is this? And yet, she moves forward. If you're really going to understand Ruth, You must understand that she is governed by her life priorities, her values, and the vow that she made in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. You remember last week, we spent some time looking at this. Ruth puts it out there, these are my life priorities as God has ordained and orchestrated them in her life. And just to review, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, she lists four priorities that are going to govern her life. She has loyalty to family. See that verse 16, chapter 1? Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. I am loyal to my family. Her second life priority, community with believers. Your people shall be my people. And the third, fidelity to God. Your God, I want you to know he's now my God. And then all of this comes to the forefront when she says, and this is my life intention. May God hold me accountable to this. Her fourth life priority is responsibility for a lifetime. Verse 17. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me. And worse, if anything but death parts you from me. When you have figured out what God's calling you to in terms of your life priorities... Friends, that will make all the difference to pull you out of depression, out of your discouragement, out of the myopic view of just yourself and your life circumstances. And so last week, I I gave you my life priorities. And if you missed that and you'd like to see them, just go back on our website. You can watch the message. And I just put them out there for you. And I challenge every single one of you to write out your life priorities, What is God calling you to do? You don't want to be like a little pinball and just kind of kicked around by circumstance. Like, I think I'll do this, and oh, we're here, and, and not having clarity on your values. Your life priorities will give you the ability to make decisions, guide your direction, and develop you. It'll be so very helpful, especially if you're discouraged and not knowing what to do. That's Ruth. And she has the life priorities I've made a vow, these are my values. It's not about me and my happiness, and I'm not like, gonna dump Naomi and just kind of do whatever I want. No, I'm going to live out my priorities as God has placed them in my heart. I'm a worshiper of Him. And so, what Ruth does is she moves forward by faith. She develops a plan, and in all humility and in God's strength, she acts. She doesn't go passive, she takes responsibility. And she moves forward. And her plan is go to a field and to glean among the ears of the grain. Now you're like, okay, what, what's really going on here? What is her plan? So let me just talk to you a little bit about what harvest looked look like. So at harvest time, first would come the barley, okay, so that would be kind of like April and May, or, or March and April. And then you had wheat, uh, June and July. They'd have these massive fields. Um, and they were segmented out. They kind of knew by, by virtue of these marker stones where the, who, who belonged to what and, and which part of this field belonged to this individual. But there were no fences. There were no, like, signs, welcome to, you know, happy Boaz farm or anything like that. It's none of that stuff, okay? But they knew because those markers were what part of the field belonged to who. And what it looked like at harvest time is you would have men that were hired, And these hired men had sickles, and they would take a bunch of grain, take those stalks, whoosh, cut it, and then all those stalks would go down on the ground. And so they're kind of going, and they're just putting down all that crop down on the ground, and then right behind them would be these maidens, these females, these ladies, and they'd be gathering that grain up in bundles, and they would eventually haul it off to a threshing floor where it actually, the grain would be separated from the chaff and the stalks. And that's how it worked. But there, were, there was one other feature to harvest time in Israel. Unique to Israel, it was one of the identifying signs that God was in their midst, and these were his people, is that there, there were, by divine design, to be gleaners. These are the needy, the poor, the marginalized, the foreigners, and they had, by written decree in God's law, they were to go out and they were to also harvest grain. And you can read about this like in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. What a farmer was to do was to leave the corners and not harvest it. And furthermore, as they did cut stocks, and as these women were picking up these stocks and bundling up there, they were also supposed to leave some of the stocks so that the needy, the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner could come and actually pick them up, or they could actually harvest at the corners. In my reading, I found out that some of these farmers, these believers in God, who took him at his word, they would leave up to a quarter of their field, uncut, just as a way to provide for the poor. It provided for the poor and did so with dignity. It just didn't dump grain, you're poor, here's some grain, no, no here's an opportunity for you to also earn a living in a noble, dignified fashion. And God set this up that you were faithful to Him He was going to provide. You see this like in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. It says on the subject, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheath uh, in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien and the orphan and for the widow in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work, Of your hands. You see that? I'll tell you what, this is a radical view of stewardship. You are giving by faith, generously, graciously. God is providing for the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. And at the same time, God says, I'm going to bless you. You become a conduit of blessing, a conduit of grace. It's what He desires for each one of His people. And so when Ruth says, this is my plan, that's what she's saying. I'm going to be one of the gleaners. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to try to pick up some of the stalks of grain. And you're like, oh, that's great. But you need to understand that gleaning, being some of those who are among the poor and the marginalized and the needy out there collecting grain, I want you to know that gleaners were oftentimes mistreated. Some of them were abused And what this looked like is, so you've got all these folks that are needy, hungry, orphaned, oppressed. And when that harvest is happening, all of a sudden they're going out in these fields. And the strongest, the hungriest, or the meanest, they're the ones that are going to collect the most grain. And shoving, pushing, taking advantage, abusing different gleaners, uh, that apparently was pretty commonplace. It could get rough out there. Ruth has some understanding of what she's getting into, but not fully. But I want you to see, see how impressive this woman is? She's moving forward by faith. She's ready to take some heat. She is a young gal out there. She's a foreigner. She's going to be a target. But she's like, I am moving forward by faith. And she does. She goes out. She gets permission, Naomi says. Naomi's really not even functioning at this point. She's kind of like just, can't you just see her like laying down on a floor like, Yeah, just go for it because she can't move forward, but Ruth does. So verse 3, So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. But this is how most Americans interpret verse 3. How lucky is Ruth? What luck! She happened to go to the very field belonging to Boaz. She doesn't even know it, but that's like a relative of Naomi's. Oh, really lucky. I want you to know, luck has nothing to do with it. This is God's providence happening. This isn't by chance Providence is how God moves his people and history to its ultimate end. Providence is God at work in the midst of the circumstances. But you know, we've relegated this to luck. Luck is events happening perceived by chance where God isn't even in the equation. And listen to how often you read about or hear people say, well, I was just lucky, or I had some good luck, right? Or it was a stroke of good luck. Don't, didn't you hear it? Maybe you even heard it from your own mouth. That's really not understanding God, his ways, and his providence. I challenge you to pick a different word. Maybe pick, wow, providential instead of luck, because that's exactly what we see here with Ruth. And so you see that, wow, all of a sudden, God is at work. But does Ruth have any idea Absolutely not. Does Naomi? Naomi's just kind of laying over here in a heap somewhere. She's not really functioning very well. But do you see that God is at work? You know, wouldn't it be great if we could see life from God's vantage point? See, all we can do is see life from our vantage point. I see this, this, and this. This makes sense. And I got this over here that totally doesn't make sense. And why did this happen And from our vantage point, it may look like, man, nothing's happening, or this is disorganized or chaotic, and it's certainly painful, and it's hurting me. But I want you to see that God is at work in ways that you perhaps can never see. It's the power of his ability to move events according to his will. And what happens is, so often that people say, okay, I get it, I will attribute the good things to God. And so what happens when you something good in your mind happens to you, it's favorable, and you're like, wow, God really moved. He answered my prayers, and it all worked out just the way I wanted, right? But then what happens is if you just put God in that little box, what happens when it doesn't work out like you thought it should? So often what we do is we treat God like he's like some sort of fairy godmother in a fairy tale, right? And you know how the the fairy godmother works, right? You've seen Cinderella, right? You know, saw it last year. Uh, So the fairy godmother comes and she waves her wand, right, like that, and like, something wonderful happens, right? And we think that, yeah, that's right, you got it. I heard my four-year-old over here saying, you got it. Yeah, that's kind of how it works in the fairy tales. Or, that right in like a superhero movie right before, like it's all just going to fall apart, then the superhero comes and shows up, and he or she uses their superpower, right? And, uh, and things all get better. It usually involves fighting, but things get better. If that's your view of God, you are going to be sorely disappointed. You have put God in a box that He simply does not belong And will not stay in. He is far more complex. His ways are far more mysterious and can't always be defined. Global, universal, working throughout all aspects of time. And you and I have got to be good at settling with the reality. We've got a very limited vantage point of what's going on. Most of us at some point are going to have experiences like Naomi and Ruth. And we're going to be in big trouble if we put God in a box where we only attribute like, well, he only does these good things. And the rest, don't know. Satan took over, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Friends, God is just as much work in the favorable circumstances that are happening to you and have happened to you as he is in the difficult and the inexplicable. See, the evidence of God's presence is seen in his power to direct our lives. I mean, I think about it in my own life and think about it for you. Like you heard something exactly when you should. You were brought into that circumstances. You were able to help. Someone helped you. Someone spoke into your life just when you needed to hear it. Friends, I want you to know that that is evidence of God's presence. And the evidence of God's presence is seen in his power to direct our lives. You know those times where you're like, you were right where you're supposed to be? I want you to know That's by God's divine design. It's providence. It's like one of the trail markers of evidence of his presence. But let me give you another. The evidence of God's presence is seen not only in his power to direct our lives, but it's also seen in people who manifest his character. More often than not, when you are looking for evidence of God's presence, you will find it in one of his image bearers. So we see, beginning in verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his servant, who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, and so he's recounting a conversation that Ruth had with this Guy who was in charge of all the reapers, she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus, she came and has remained from the morning until now, and she's been sitting in the house for a little while. So here we have Boaz, and he shows up. And notice, said, this guy seems to be pretty attentive, and he is not afraid to talk about God. In fact, he introduces, may the Lord be with you, may the Lord bless you, right? He's talking about God. You see that, may the Lord be with you. And they all said, "Wow, may the Lord bless you. He's talking about Yahweh, all right? But I want you to know it's one thing to talk about God and about God blessing, and it's a whole other for you to be the blessing that you're asking for and asking God to provide. But not only is he unashamed about talking about God, you see just a depth, of, of relationship with God, and you see some real care for how he addresses the people that are working with him, I mean, this is this is real leadership. Not taking advantage of people. People aren't a means to an end. He really cares. This guy has got a keen eye for detail. And he immediately picks up, I don't know how many people are working for him, but he notices there's one of them. This, this person is new. Who is that gal over there? And he finds out, oh, that's, That's the Moabite gal, you know, Moab, from the land of Moab, the enemies of Israel, the one that came with Naomi that everybody seems to be talking about. And so he picks that up, and then then Boaz himself has a conversation with Ruth, (laughs) like, who is this guy? Amazing stature, this huge wealthy landowner, and here is this foreigner who's asking permission to pick up sheaves of grain as a needy person. And Boaz comes and approaches her. Think of the dignity, the humility, the strength of character. This is impressive. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one But stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. So Boaz goes to this foreigner, never met, she's never met him, and he tells her, listen, you work with my maidens. All of those that are gathering sheaves, you just go ahead and glean as much as you want. Furthermore, I have put out a warning that no one should even touch you. And that's not like just kind of pat you on the shoulder. That just tells you just how rough it could be out in those fields. Even like a godly man like Boaz knows that these, some of these gleaners and some of the f- folks that are working the harvest, it could get vicious out there. And when we're talking vicious, like they would take advantage of a girl like this. And, abuse her. and he says, I've put out the warning, don't mess with her. And furthermore, when you get thirsty, see those water jars over there where all my servants drink? You go ahead and get some water over there. You don't have to leave and take the two-mile journey to go to get some well, get some water and then come back in the, in the sun and be thirsty again. When you're thirsty, you just go to those water jars and drink. Ruth had to be like, what in the world is happening? Who is this man that is treating me with such grace and kindness? And so she responds in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor or grace in your sight, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What? why are you doing this? She gives this very common gesture that is found in the Middle East or the ancient Near East where they would just bow down. It was a sign of humility, of gratitude. And she bows down before him and she says, why have I found such unmerited favor? Why have I found such grace? And if you're thinking like, oh, well, just Boaz is just infatuated with Ruth. No, I don't think so. Really not at this point. What Boaz is doing is He has heard of this young woman's heart for Yahweh. He has heard the sacrifices that she has made for her mother-in-law. And it is downright impressive. It's noble. It's great. It's powerful. People of depth. When they see power, strength, integrity, character in the lives of others, man, that just resonates. It fires them up. And Boaz literally specifically calls out specific ways in which Naomi has functioned, functioned well. That's the best way to encourage someone. And look at what he says. He says, verse 11, Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. I've heard about these things. Look at verse 12. I've got this underlined because this is really powerful to understanding the book of Ruth. May the Lord, listen to Boaz, may Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And here now Boaz says, listen, I've heard of all that you've done. I see the sacrifices that you've made, the faith that you have. May the Lord richly bless you. May the Lord be the one who rewards you and gives you full wages. And notice that he says, because you have sh- sought To find shelter under his wings. What he's doing is he's pointing out the great faith that Ruth has. The shelter of God's wings, it's it's a figure of speech. You know that. God doesn't have wings, it's a zoomorphism, okay? But this was a very powerful symbol, a figure of speech that spoke of God securing, caring for, and providing for his people. Just like like a, a bird would then shelter her chicks, so the image is that God will provide protection, care, security, hope, help for his people. This is a powerful image. You find it throughout the Psalms. You know where you specifically see it? At the very heart of Israel's faith is the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember in the tabernacle, you have the Holy of Holies. At the, you have the tabernacle... And here's a picture of what that looked like. You had the wings of the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. At the very character of God's holiness is one who is a security, a protector, and a provider for his people. That's exactly where you want to be in the midst of God's holiness, covered by his protection and his care and being at rest there. And that's what Boaz is pointing out. Ruth, you have great faith, and you have come to find security, shelter, and provision in the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And Ruth responds, verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have... Comforted me, and indeed you have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. Verse ten, she called herself a foreigner. Now she says, I'm a, I'm one of your maidservants, but I want you to know Boaz isn't done. At the me- mealtime, verse fourteen, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied, and had some left. And that word vinegar, uh, hummus, it could actually be translated hummus, like, you know, chickpea sauce, garbanzo beans. And the word for pieces of bread is pita. If you've ever had pita and hummus, that's likely what they're having right here. And notice that Boaz himself, this would be like, everybody would be like, what is going on? He gives her more than enough food. So she has leftovers for Naomi, who she's looking to provide for. But it doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Verse 14, at meal time... Uh, Boaz made this statement, gave her more than she could eat. Verse 15, then, when she rose to glean, look at Boaz, he commanded his servants saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So Boaz is leading by example, which is the most effective way of leadership. But then he says, listen, I've not only given you a pattern, but I am am promoting how you should treat her, treat her with dignity, and you actually set out grain for her to pick up. And he's doing this unbeknownst to Ruth. I'll tell you what, this is impressive. You know what this is, by the way? This is one of the trail markers of God's providential presence. People who manifest his character. Haven't you seen it in your life? People that manifest the character of God how helpful they have been to you, what it means to you. And I want you to know, you're that person in other people's lives. The evidence of God's presence is seen in His power to direct our lives, His people who manifest His character, and finally, in His provisions to bless His people. Look at verse 17. So Ruth, she gleaned in the field until evening, and when she beat out what she had gleaned, it was about an ephah of barley. Okay, and you're like, have no idea what an EFA is. I, why don't you try this? When you're at the store, ask for an EFA of flour. See what happens, right? I'll tell you, an EFA is about 30 pounds worth of barley, uh, 26 quarts. If you're a farmer, almost a half a bushel. This is far more than anyone would ever get. This would keep a worker and his family alive for a significant period of time, at least a couple of weeks. You see, all of these are trail markers of God's presence. He's at work. My question to you is, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? You know, we all go through times of difficulty and challenge, pain, things that don't make sense, things we have never scripted into our life. And me personally, when I've gone through these difficult times, facing the unknowns, the tragic or the unexplicable, I have found that God has used these to make me deeper, more dependent upon Him, increasing my faith, Uh, learning how to pray in a much more in-depth way. And it's also been so helpful just to see the reality of my salvation, that God has me. I still believe, even if I don't understand. And if you want to know, well, how can I see God's trail markers? Let me just give you a simple acronym, ACT, A-C-T. Ask, consider, thank. Ask God, God, how are you working my life, my family, my church in this situation? Consider, when God brings this to your mind, these different ways, consider how he's, he's at work and providing for you, people, relationships, and then thank him. Specifically, thank God for every single thing that comes to mind of how he's at work. Last night, I was talking with a couple. They're going through some pretty difficult stuff. And I said, why don't you just start making a list of all the things you're thankful for? Do you know why? That'll totally change your perspective and it'll put it back on God who is at work even in the midst of the difficulty. Friends, God's trail markers of grace, they're everywhere. What we want to do is be looking for them. And believing that God is good and that he is great allows us to move forward by faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture that you highlight how you're working even in the midst of things when we do not understand. So, Lord, would you give us grace and strength to trust you? Would you give us eyes to see the trail markers of your favor, the goodness of your grace? And even in the difficulty, to know that you're with us, that you love us, and you're ultimately working all things together for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.